When you think about gratitude, you know, I think of a story that I've heard just recently of a, of a butcher. So, you know, old school butcher shop, old school butcher shop, and the butcher's in there just kind of tending to his shop, getting things ready. He has his back to the door, uh, back to the counter, back to the door, and he's kind of just arranging things on the shelves that are behind the counter. And he hears the little bell tingle above the door, the door open, and he, cannot, he can't see anyone. He's kind of looking around what's going on. He looks over the counter, and he sees a dog there, a dog of all things. The dog has this pouch, and in this pouch is some money and, 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 and a list. And the, and, the dog, and, the, and the butcher shop owner, he has a list of just various things, but when it comes to the, to, the, to the items that he needs from the butcher shop, he doesn't have this particular things that he needs, so he's kind of going through this list. Obviously, an owner has sent the dog down. It's one of these dogs that's trained like, to get something from the refrigerator, and it's an even, uh, even more intelligent dog. He goes down to, the, down to the shop, the butcher shop down the street. And so the, the butcher goes through the kind of list. Okay, bacon, nothing. He says, okay, chicken, no, nothing. Ham, nothing. He says, steaks, roof. Man, wow, this is amazing. So this dog has this, he's, this owner has trained this dog. There's this dog that has figured out how to order from the butcher shop. He gives them some steaks, kind of puts it in the pouch here, and then takes the money. And, but, but the butcher is just fascinated. He turns the sign over in the store window, closed for lunch, follows this dog back to this dog's apartment, walks up the stairs, and he begins to scratch on the door. And this owner is just kind of waiting in the wings to see what would happen. Or this butcher shop owner, he's just kind of waiting in the wings to see what happened. The dog scratches on the door, and a man flings the door open. Obviously, the dog's owner just begins to berate this dog. And the butcher, the butcher just steps out of the wings of this hallway and says, what are you doing? This is the most intelligent dog I've ever seen. And the owner says, well, yeah, but this is the third day in a row that he's forgot his key. So <laughs> there you go. There is your cheesy pastor joke slash story for the day. Okay, you know, right? You can thank Lifeway for that one, in fact, but cheesy pastor joke slash story. But what it does in a very strange and weird and uh, unbelievable, because it truly is unbelievable, uh, way, what it does, it frames for us a gratitude or really lack thereof. And when we look at uh, this sermon today in Luke chapter 17, verses uh, 11 through 19, the title of it, in fact, is In One Return, because many of us know this story very well of the 10 lepers and one returned with gratitude under the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been healed of their leprosy. And I love this passage here in this interesting time and this one Sunday, in fact, a month that we have together because it is a Sunday as we're in the midst of month of missions when we're thinking about uh, living on mission, not only in our personal lives, but as we talk about internationally to the ends of the earth, represented, of course, by these flags that we see on display here and everywhere in between. You hear me say that quite often because we're not supposed to just be missional uh, in our personal lives and as a church here in Wichita, but we're to be missional at the ends of the earth. We're not just to be missional at the ends of the earth, but we're to be missional in our personal lives and everywhere in between. Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's not in progression as you look in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, but it is everywhere. We're to be missional in all of those areas. And so we see this uh, in, in this passage, and on this week, we see how missions is directly related to gratitude. And so 
Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11, says this, And now it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem. He passed through the midst of of Samaria and Galilee. We'll get back to that in just a moment. It's very important. Then as he entered a certain village, there he met 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. We know a great deal about that skin disease. We'll talk a little bit more about it. And they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So word had spread of this Jesus who was called the Christ, who was healing and doing incredible miracles. Not only that, but he was teaching like none other had ever taught. And so when Jesus saw them, verse 14, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. Even he was working within the framework of, uh, 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 of the day and, and, and working under authority of the day, even though Jesus Christ was the authority of all authorities. He gave them something to do, this action step of faith to go and show themselves to the priest. And it said in verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice, he glorified God, fell down on his face at Jesus's feet and giving him and gave him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 that were cleansed? But where are the other nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, again, I love this passage for this time of year because in this one passage, we see this powerful intersection of missions and gratitude. Right here, wrapped up in this powerful little package, is an intersection of missions and gratitude. And so as we walk through this passage today, we're going to see three observations from it about that very intersection of missions and gratitude. The very first thing that we see is desperation, desperation by these men. Again, it says, as Jesus was passing from Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, part of the Jezreel Valley. And as he was going, he was going through Samaria. And so along the way, as you would imagine, there would be Samaritans. Now, what's the interesting thing about Samaria and Samaritans? In fact, Luke makes a a priority of mentioning that at the end of the passage. And in fact, we know of the story of the Good Samaritan, that two others passed by a man that was injured along the road, but Jesus made a point to tell his audience that the one who helped the injured man was a Samaritan. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because there was incredible enmity between the Samaritans and the Hebrew people, the Jews of the day. It dated all the way back. Here's a little history lesson for you, but I think it's very interesting. And in fact, we need to know it. It's, it's, it's all of what this enmity is based upon. 722 BC, remember, Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. And as they do, they leave some of the, the, the native Jewish people there. They deport many. And also in the intervening decades and centuries after that, as they still had control over that land, Assyria imported Uh, people into that land. Native Syrians uh, brought them to Jerusalem. Well, now the people knew, the Jewish people knew that were there and some of them that were able to return in little bits and pieces. They knew that God had told them from days of old not to intermarry with the people around them. And it it wasn't an issue of race. It wasn't an issue of culture. It was an issue of the fact that those people around them were pagans. They were were worshiping false gods and false idols, and he knew it would be a cancer among the people. 
Well, what happened? As some of the Assyrians entered the land and some of the Jews that were still there and some of the Jews that returned, they did actually intermarry with some of these pagan people. Now, yes, the Jews that were there did not follow God's direction of old. But the people, the intervening Jewish people, as they returned, as the exiles had returned over the intervening centuries right up until this day, there grew this great hatred and enmity that went far beyond what God uh, would think himself. Yes, he directed the people not to intermarry with pagan nations, but we know that they did and we know that all people are created in the image of God. And God cared for these Samaritans just as he cared for anyone else that walks the face of this earth. And so, of course, the Hebrew people of the day, and especially the establishment of the day, took this far beyond what needed to happen. And there developed a mutual hatred, in fact. In, in, in some of the intervening centuries, when, they, when the, uh, the people, the Jewish people returned to the land and they tried to rebuild the walls and the temples, the Samaritans who still worshipped Yahweh, many of them in great part, said, hey, we'll help you with the temple. We worship the same God. We'll help you with the temple. And the Jews said, absolutely not. We don't want any help. You stay there. And so there developed two places of worship. Remember, that's where uh, the, the, the woman at the well, when Jesus meets with her in John chapter 4, she said, well, our people worship on this mountain. Your people worship over here. That's the backstory of that as well. But a mutual hatred developed. In fact, it, it, get to the point, it was to the point where when someone was wanting to insult Jesus in John chapter 8, when his adversaries were wanting to insult him, they could think of no better insult, no more poignant and, and, and cutting insult than this. He says, aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? Demon-possessed was number two on the list when they were insulting Jesus. And so there's this great enmity and this hatred. And that's why we see this backstory, not only John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, the story of the Good Samaritan. It was scandalous to to Jesus' original hearers to think, okay, the one that stopped and actually helped was a Samaritan? And then we see this again here. So this man that returned to Jesus Christ to, to, to thank him for what he had done was not only a leper, but he was a Samaritan. And so it says here that 10 men who were lepers, 10 men who were lepers, they were gathered together, their desperation. They didn't even care that one of them or multiple were Samaritans and one were a Jew. They were in a place of desperation. And so I think as I talk to you believers in the room here, Christians, those who have given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, it reminds us of that time of desperation when we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the impetus was for you in your life, you knew you came to the end of your rope, no matter how young you were and how might that translate through a child's mind or if you were in a later stage of your life, you were an adult and you really knew what desperation meant and to be at the end of your rope, they were in desperation just like we were when we said, I can do nothing else, but I need Jesus Christ. So these men were lepers. Leprosy even today claims 180,000 people worldwide. Even today, yes, in the midst of billions of people, it doesn't seem like much. But we think about the severity of this disease, 180,000 worldwide. Mutilating skin disease with nerve damage, blindness, infertility, kidney failure, lack of flexion, of course, that's, that your hands start to seize up until you have like claw-like hands and bony lesions all over your body. 
In Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, we see, and we see this echoed in other places in Scripture, it calls us to do this. The person afflicted with an affection of a skin disease is to have their clothes torn and his hair hanging loose, must cover his mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean. And this wasn't because God was being mean or ugly. It was a matter of protection. It was a way of almost quarantining uh, in those days when they had no other way to deal with it. But you can imagine in the midst of an unkind and hateful world, that's the thing, situations, manifestations have changed, but the human heart has never changed. Can you imagine even, uh, even in the midst of a harsh and, and difficult world, how these folks would be ostracized from society? Taking a modern story, Ravi Zacharias, the great uh, apologist, Christian apologist and theologian, tells of a, a story of Brother Joseph Damien who was called to, a, to, to look over and shepherd a leper colony, and of all places, Molokai, Hawaii. So what a juxtaposition, as Ravi Zechariah tells this story, the juxtaposition of this setting. These that are ravaged with a horrible and ugly skin disease in the midst of paradise, in the midst of paradise. And even in the midst of paradise, it's as if they're imprisoned by the world's steepest sea cliffs. So this juxtaposition here of the beauty and the imprisonment, not only physically, but of the disease as well. But this man, Joseph Damien, this believer, was called to this leper colony to shepherd them, to care for them. Talk about a thankless calling, but talk about a sure and certain calling, knowing that the Lord had called him to witness and to minister to these people of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he lived with them, as he went throughout his days with them, as he lived life with them. He would go throughout the, 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 the days and the rigors of life, always wondering if he might contract that disease. And one morning, he was stirring boiling water, uh, pouring himself some tea, and some of that boiling water dropped on his foot. And to his horror, he felt absolutely nothing. And to test it again, he dropped some more on his other foot, felt absolutely nothing. And it says, as the story goes, that the next day as they were meeting for chapel, it was his practice each and every day to say, my fellow believers. On this day, he said, my fellow lepers. You see, he had given his life to these and cared for them. And now, not only in heart, but also in physicality, he could identify with these of whom he was called to minister to. You know, when we think about this intersection again of gratitude and missions, do we identify with those around us? Do we identify with the dying and the hurting people around us? You know, the passage that I love to quote quite often of uh, Matthew chapter 9, right at the end of the chapter before Jesus sent out uh, the disciples to go into all the cities, it said that he looked out upon the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? He wept. He wept because his heart was broken for them. Do we look out upon the people of our lives and our circles of influence, and do we have that same sort of brokenness? Do we identify, do we remember our desperation before we came to faith in Jesus Christ and identify that same desperation of those around us? Yes, it might not be right at the surface for those in our place of work or our families or our neighbors. It may take a difficult tragedy in their life to bring that desperation to the surface. As I often say, it may take a moment of just honesty and quiet in their life. It's so hard for us to get a moment of quiet. It seems like we're, we're, we're absolutely 
um, allergic to the quiet in, in, in modern society, right? We do everything that we can to kind of keep, keep the quiet away, keep the quiet at bay with screen time, whatever it may be, distractions galore. But maybe it takes that moment of just those simple moments of quiet right before someone falls to sleep and they realize that desperation is there. It frames them. They share in it. And do we remember it? Do we identify with them? But what did they do? They said in verse 13, Jesus, have mercy on us. All pretense was gone. Their desperation and and their disease had long ago driven away all pretense from their life. They were desperate. The pretense was gone. And they said, Master, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When they came to him, they came to him in the exact right spiritual posture. They said, Master. They realized the supremacy of Jesus. They realized they needed a master. And they said, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Folks, those of us in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ, again, as the book of Colossians tells us, that in the same way we came to faith in Christ, so now walk in him. Just in the same way that we came to him in faith, we need faith to walk through life. And in the same way that we needed mercy at, at salvation, we need mercy each and every day. And they came to him in the right spiritual posture saying, Master, have mercy on us. Do we realize daily that desperation that we still have? Yes, we've been saved. Yes, we've been cleansed. Yes, we've been given a new life in Christ, a new identity in Christ, been adopted into the family of God. But God never designed the Christian life, and he never designed our life on missions to be done on our own, twisting in the wind, but we're in desperate need of him. Do we realize our dependence, and does it fill us with gratitude and thanksgiving? That great saint, we know him, Billy Graham, one of the greatest saints and evangelists the world has ever known says this about Thanksgiving. When Thanksgiving is filled with true meaning, it is not just the formality of polite thank you, it is the recognition of dependence. He says again, when Thanksgiving is filled with true meaning, and it is not just the formality of a polite thank you, When that's not happening, when he says it is true thanksgiving, true gratitude, you know why it is? He says it is the recognition of dependence. And of all things, the recognition of dependence upon God. So when we think about these these men here, when we think about uh, looking back into our lives as well, the moment of of salvation, when we we, we realize very palpably our dependence and our desperation on God, and when we say that should drive us into missions and drive us on our knees each and every day, we think about this desperation. It dispenses with pretense. And desperation, what does it do? It craves a master. You see, we're not working when we're going, when we're going on mission into our world, into our, our circles of influence, we're not going out there with a the deck stacked against us. We know that we're going into a world that is desperate. Unfortunately, they're deceived. They're deceived by the world. They're deceived by Satan, our enemy. They're deceived by their own heart. But guess what? Their desperation, their desperation, whether it's buried below the surface or is it bubbling right there at top, It craves someone to be a master to say, fix this for me. Give me the solution. Give me the answer. And we know that master is none other than Jesus Christ. What does he do? They say, Jesus, have mercy on us. And he gives them a very simple yet powerful step of faith. And he says, go and show yourself to the priest. Go and show yourself to the priest. 
He puts action and gives them opportunity to put action to their faith. In the same way as we said, Colossians uh, chapter 2 says, In the same way you came to faith in Christ, so now walk in him. We said that applies to mercy. It also applies to faith. He gives us an opportunity each day to walk in faith. Each time we make one of those breakthroughs, each time we take another breakthrough in the life of a person that desperately needs Jesus Christ, each time we open up one of those conversations, every time that we have an opportunity to to take that, that relationship to its full expression and actually share the good news of the gospel, each one of those is an opportunity for practical faith, putting one foot in front of the other as we trust God with the results. So not only does our desperation, does it remind us of the desperation of those around us, the desperation of these men reminds us of our own desperation as well. Not only that, but we see gratitude, gratitude. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God, fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, giving Jesus thanks. And guess what? The kicker of all. He was the Samaritan. He wasn't the good Jewish boy, if you will. He was the one that was considered by the people of the day and the religious establishment of the day. He was the one that was doubly unclean. Not only was he a leper, but he was a Samaritan. And this man with no elegance, it wasn't a private acknowledgement. He said, I must go back. My, my gratitude is not only driving me back to the feet of Jesus Christ, but as we'll see as Jesus sent him on in the next few verses, it is driving him to go out. The simplest expression of mission, the simplest expression of living missionally, which is to go out and share your faith. What did he do when he came? He glorified God. He came to Jesus and he glorified God. That is the focus of missions. When we're thinking about, again, this intersection of missions and gratitude, the focus of our mission is to glorify God. You realize in mission, it's not even the people that are focus number one. That is even focus number two, a glorious focus number two it is. But focus number one is the glory of God in mission. Number two, he fell down. He fell face down. That is the attitude of our mission. In the same way that we come and we fall face down before the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, so many years ago when you personally gave your life to the Lord Jesus, again, as you came to faith in Christ, so now walk in him. When we walk on missions, we have the attitude or the posture of being, if you will, spiritually on our face before the Lord, sometimes very much truthfully on our face before the Lord in prayer, the attitude of missions. He glorified God. He fell face down. And what did he do? And giving him thanks, giving Jesus thanks. Again, this is right at the apex. This is right at the crossroad of this missions and thankfulness and missions and gratitude. That is the motivation for our mission. We don't do it as a notch on our belt. We don't do it as some sort of access into heaven. Like if we knock on enough doors and we do our mission well enough, then God will say that we're allowed to go into heaven. That's works-based religion. We we go out, we share our faith, we, we go to the ends of the earth because of gratitude for what Jesus Christ did for us upon the cross. You see, gratitude leads to glorification, and glorification finds its ultimate expression in missions. We glorify God because of our gratitude, and that glorification, it finds its ultimate expression, whether it be around the corner or to the ends of the earth, and going 
and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So we see desperation. The first observation is desperation of the people. Next, next observation was gratitude, but unfortunately, number three is we see negligence. Negligence of the other nine. Verses 17 and following says this, So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? Jesus knew this. One of the first of, a, first of three rhetorical questions. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were they not found who returned to give glory to God, any of them except for this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Made you well. Again, these three rhetorical questions that, that highlighted the fact that this was the foreigner. This was the Samaritan. This is not one of our good Jewish boys. This is the Samaritan. But the other nine seem to have a, a spiritual amnesia, right? They seem to very quickly forget what Jesus Christ had done for them. But isn't that true of us as well? Isn't that one of the reasons that apathy and complacency for the good news of the gospel and for mission in our lives and for, for going out and, 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 and caring for and leading those around us to faith in Christ? Isn't it the fact that we oftentimes have spiritual amnesia? We have forgotten how great and how glorious our salvation was. Sometimes we can also be so focused on ourselves. You see, these men were undoubtedly excited these men, if someone were to say to them, hey, aren't you thankful for what Jesus did? They'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. But they were so focused on just their own situation as wonderful and as great and as grand as it was, they were so nearsighted that they missed the fact of gratitude. You see, here's the thing. Are you spiritually nearsighted? Am I? Are you? Are we spiritually nearsighted? Are you only focused on you? Guess what? Focus on others. God will take care of you. And you say, Pastor, well, how do I focus on me? I know we've been called to go out, not only to the ends of the earth, but right around the corner. And you say, I know, Pastor, we've been walking through these these, uh, 500 breakthroughs. And, And you say, Pastor, give me practically, what can I do? How can I share my faith? We've been walking through this each of the last few weeks, and we're gonna do it again. And as a reminder to you, You can go back and look on our social media pages, find links that you need of very practical ways to live missionally. You can go right back here to these tables and find this little booklet that matches this this little slideshow that we're going to walk through here. But again, you say, Pastor, how can I practically do this? Well, here's a very simple way that you can share your faith, very simple, powerful way to share the good news of the gospel. The very first thing that we see is God's design. It's very clear in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 1, that we're not here by just a chance. We're not here by a mat, a kind of a multiplication or a matter of time plus matter plus chance. But the Bible tells us that we were all created. And guess what? As human beings, we are the crown jewel of his creation. We are created in the image of God. But guess what happened? Sin entered the world. Sin is when we do things our way instead of God's way. And we, we violate his law and we violate his character. We do things our way instead of God's way. What happens when sin not only entered the world, but enters our life? We see brokenness. You know, here's the thing. We don't have to look very far beyond our lives. We don't have to look very far beyond our news feed and, and the front page of the newspaper to realize there's great brokenness in our world and there's great brokenness in our lives. And that's a product of sin. 
And somebody might say to you at that point, well, you know, that doesn't sound like very good news. Especially when we think about Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says that every single person in the world has fallen short of the glory of God. And the first part of Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. So not only do we see brokenness in our lives, but the ultimate expression of brokenness in our world and in our lives is that we remain separated from God, not spending eternity with him in heaven, but spending eternity separated from him in a place called hell. The ultimate expression of brokenness, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And somebody might still say, well, I don't see where the good news is yet. Well, here's the good news, the gospel. That's exactly what that word means. It means good news. And it said, the Bible tells us that even though we were separated from God because of sin and their brokenness in our lives, that God loved us so much to send his son. The most popular verse, the most famous verse, I guess you could say in all of scripture is God so loved the world, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's Jesus, that whosoever might, would believe in him shall not perish, but might have eternal life. That's the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And you might say, and the person might say, okay, well, what do I have to do to get that? So I've got to be the best person I possibly can, right? So from here on out, I'm going to do as well as I possibly can. And then maybe at the end of my life, God will say, okay, that's good. You've done enough good stuff to make up for all the bad stuff in your life, right? Isn't that right? No. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it is by grace you were saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, so that no man can boast. It is a free gift of God so that no one can boast. You see, the standard isn't, are you better than your neighbor or are you better than you used to be? The standard is God himself. The standard is perfection. So what did he do? In the place of not being able to earn salvation for ourselves, God provided a way. He provided his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we're coming up on Christmas here very soon, those, those gifts under the trees, they might be gifts to us, but they're not ours until we take them, right? So what do we do to, to receive this free gift of salvation? Romans chapter 10 tells us that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We also, Jesus Christ himself said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe. Repent means to turn away from your old way of life and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on him as your Savior and your Lord. And when you do that, when you're saved, you can recover and you can pursue that relationship with God that you were meant to have. So then the question is, when you're sharing this gospel message with someone, you do need to come to the point where you say, is that a decision that you'd like to make? Is that a decision that you'd like to make? Would you like to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? He says again right here, and you may not be able to see it at the bottom, but you can see it in one of those little booklets. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because it is more than just saying, yeah, I think I can believe that. Belief is meaning that we are placing our faith and trust. We are placing our whole lives in the hand of Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. So here's the thing. As we think about verse 19 here again of, of our passage, it says, and Jesus said to this man, the one leper that returned, he says, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. So as we walk through this presentation here just a few moments ago, this is obviously a way that we train ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ to share that good news, the message of the gospel. Let me ask you this. Are you here today and have you given your life to Jesus Christ? 
The Bible tells us that a Christian, and therefore someone who is saved, someone who's been forgiven, adopted into the family of God, and his ultimate destination is heaven, that person is a Christian, and that person who's a Christian is not because they've attended church their whole life. It's not because they have Christian relatives. It's not because they live in America and don't claim another religion. A Christian is someone who at a distinct point in their life has come to a place where they repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Is that you? Have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come unto him as your Savior and your Lord? Let's pray. Lord God, as we come this morning to this time of response, if there is anyone here today that has never given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, may this be the day that they would turn unto him. May this be the day that they would repent and believe and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved. God, we have the greatest of all gratitude for what you've done for us, that you've saved us through your one and only son, Jesus Christ. In his name we do pray. Amen.